Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Devna Shukla. And I'm Justin Katches. Today we have Professor Kabbalaswaran, better known as Kabi to everyone at Stern. Professor Kabi teaches three key courses, the Kabi Trifecta with Power and Politics, Leadership, and Strategic Design. He famously insists that politics is not necessarily a dirty word and encourages aspiring leaders to envision, energize, and execute. Kabi is one of today's foremost thought leaders on leadership and organizations. Outside of NYU, he has lectured institutions around the world. In his little spare time, he manages to be a prolific poet and lyricist. One Kabiism I love is, politics is the practice of the feasible. Leadership is the pursuit of the ideal. Power, politics, and love. So much to talk about. Should we get started? Let's do it. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Devna Shukla. And I'm Justin Katches. In the booth today, we have Professor Kabbalaswaran, known around the hallways here at Stern as Professor Kabi. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inv- inviting me here. So uh, in true Stern Chats tradition, we asked our guests to introduce themselves in a 30-second pitch to our listeners. So would you mind doing that for us? Sure. T minus 30 and counting. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Kabi. Um, in my previous life, I was a chemical engineer. I went to school... Um, the so-called MIT of India, IIT, and I love engineering, and I have a master's in engineering as well. But then I felt uh, I really have to know the engineering of the mind as well. So from the engineering of matter to the engineering of mind, I migrated, and here am I. At Stern. Uh, well, we like to start uh, these interviews with, uh, you know, at the very beginning. So. Paint a picture for us. What was it like growing up in India? What was your life like then? What was a young Kabi? Uh, in Kabi, um, well, um, same as the old Kabi, I was, except I was in a, I was in a more youthful shell. <laughs> All right. Uh, it, essentially, I grew up far away from big cities. Uh, quiet life, quiet life. Um, very uh, conscientious student. Uh, I loved I loved going to school. I think I was one of the few kids around who would scream if they couldn't go to school. So I loved going to school. So that has stayed with me till date. And I love reading books. So that has stayed with me till date. So in that sense, um, the shell has changed, but the spirit remains the same. And what else growing up in India is uh, with, uh, the, my introduction, my early introduction to power you know, with all the caste stratifications and mm. all that. So that, that really kind of you know, opens your eyes. You no, know, If you keep them open, that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where did you grow up in India? Um, uh, deep south of India, so-called the aboriginal southern India um, in uh, near Chennai. Wonderful. But, and then who taught you to love education so much? Cause I feel like most of us, I don't know, maybe just me, I didn't, never really loved school that much because school is a first or formal structure that you have in your life. My teachers, my teachers, my grammar school teachers, my uh, high school teachers, oh, they were so dedicated. It, just, it was just a regular government-run school, but the teachers, they were my early mentors. Amazing, amazing how people who 
paid so little can give you so much, expecting nothing in return from you because I've never seen them since. Mm-hmm. Mm. So what I what I owe them, uh, a gift to the next generation. Pay it forward, right? If you can't pay it back, you must pay it forward. (laughs) Have you ever thought about contacting them or going to visit? Um, I do, I do. I do uh, keep in touch with some of them, but uh, quite a few are, no, are passed already. How did you wind up in engineering? Was it something in particular that inspired you to go that route? Uh, No, um, I come from a very large family, and... How many brothers and sisters? Oh, man, um, I I lost count. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Quite a few. Like, uh, how, are you the we, oldest? Oh uh, no, I'm, I'm the. I'm the kind of. We could make a cricket team oh, uh, wow. with all the kids and the parents included, and if you throw in a, an uh, assortment of aunts and uncles around, uh, but I was a. Uh, I was the middle order batsman in this team. <laughs> you know, four up and four down. Uh, but the four up were all brothers. You no, know, a lot of sibling rivalry and all that. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I just love to read. No, 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 any like no, little piece of garbage, but here's something print on it. <laughs> I just scoop down and pick it up and read it. So I, it was like a congenital disease in me. I just love to read. <laughs> <laughs> what excites you most about reading? Because Justin and I talk about this a lot. He's a very avid reader yeah. and loves to read in his spare time. I don't understand reading, and I'm not proud of it, and I want to change that about myself. So what is it about reading that you love so much? Learning. Mm. Learning. You, you find out something. If you're looking for something, you always find something new. If you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. But if you keep looking for something, you always find something new. And that kind of, that intrigues me. Oh, man, I didn't know this before. And I want to know. I just want to know just for the sake of knowledge. Mm. Like, yeah, that, that's, getting that's lost me. in another world, right? Yeah. So you said, uh, you mentioned that you grew up far from big cities, and yeah. now here we are sitting yeah. in, in New York, right, the biggest city. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, what was the first that you heard of the U.S.? What was your first impression? And then talk us through how you've come through this kind of long way oh, to yeah, here. Long arc. Oh, well, uh, great question. Um, the f- first you know, kind of big splashy news I heard of, I mean, of course, you know, if you're, if you're a British colony, you always hear of, uh, no, U.S., because U.S. was also a British colony a mm-hmm. long time ago, right? <laughs> Actually, India was gained by the British this year they lost America, 1776. And we were a colony for almost 200 years. So you do have, no, we, the English language, no, kind of one language, British and the Americans have in common that divides them, mm-hmm. and I was um, I was intrigued uh, by you know anything America, uh, but most importantly, one incident that comes to my mind is uh, was who was the guy Neil Armstrong, mm-hmm. small step for for a man, giant leap for mankind. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that was it. That was a moment. Oh man. These guys are cooking. These guys are really cooking. <laughs> All right. And, and I had um, the engineering school I went to uh, in India, the IIT, uh, not top rated and all that. Um, many of my professors are from, uh, from Deutschland, German, mm-hmm. because it was a German collaboration. So anything foreign or anything alien, no, no, no you get attracted to. And I, I heard America has some of the very best graduate schools. 
and I was probably like doing my eighth grade. I knew it then. So um, the academic reputation no, of no, the, uh, no, the the graduate schools and no upper level universities in America. I think that's a that was a global brand even at the time. You know, your story reminds me a lot of my own dad because you went to IIT Madras. He went to IIT Varanasi, known as BHU at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. both came on full scholarships to do engineering yeah, yeah, here yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. I'm curious if you were ever scared to come here because it's, it's uh, no. very different from like, oh, I can FaceTime home, I can fly home on uh, a weekend. It's no it was very different back then. No way, no way. Because I kind of know there'd be more books to read, <laughs> but that was my only concern. <laughs> and um, one thing I missed was uh, uh, calling home because it was so expensive mm -hmm. those mm -hmm. days to call mama uh, home, and that was uh, that was that was the big downer. And also, you know, food wise, you, know, you get you know, if you're a vegetarian, mm. Mm, the the only choice you have is what pizza and pasta. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, the pizza in New York's pretty good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, could you describe New York and the early days of New York when you got here? What was it like, and and you know compare that to today? Oh, well, um, I think New York was um, had more graffiti on the subway trains at mm -hmm. the time, but it's pretty much gone. It's, I think the city looks you now, for some reason, uh, in my eyes, a bit cleaner now uh, than those days, but the, the same noise, the same. You know, friendly smiles from strangers' faces. You know, it's it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing how you could feel at home in New York while you could be from anywhere. And I don't think there are many cities uh, in the states or outside uh, that could make that claim. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't think there are many cities anywhere in the world where the the driver's test, you no, know, for driver's license, the written test is given in more than 20 languages, mm -hmm. including so, Arabic. Did you find a community when you got here that helped you transition and support uh, you? No, no. Babes in the woods, babes in the woods. The only community I found was in Bob's library. Oh, wow. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I, I really, a book is the best of friends. <laughs> oh, yeah, amazing. And you know what? Kind of it, it talks through time and space to you. Mm -hmm. That's what I love about books. And, and God bless Jeff Bezos you know, with this, uh, the, the Kindle. It really kindles. Are you a Kindle convert? Uh, no, not, not yet. Not because yet. I, I still love the, the caress and the rustle of pages mm -hmm. between mm -hmm. my fingers. The smell and, of the new yeah. book. Yeah, and the smell, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Devin and I actually both worked at Amazon over the summer. Fantastic. Um, and I, I have started carrying a Kindle when I travel. And it's pretty, it's pretty convenient. Oh, yeah. So Anywhere, yeah. right? Anywhere yeah, you just yeah, pick yeah, it up yeah, and read. Yeah, but. Yeah. but even you will always go to a bookstore and find some random book that you just have to buy <laughs> no matter what time of day or night and like tow it around town yeah, with you. Yeah. <laughs> I just ordered uh, working uh, a great memoir by, by Robert Caro. Robert Caro, you know, big time LBJ biographer and all that and two times Pulitzer Prize winner. The book is coming out only um, next week. So I, I went up to Amazon and pre-ordered it. And <laughs> again, the, the, the dilemma, you want to go, no, the Kindle version or the hardcover looking at you? You know, it's kind of you know, dilly-dallying between these two toys. And I said, <laughs> oh, man, I got I to go with the, the real hardcover stuff. 
So you get to New York and you're still studying engineering. And you yes. mentioned this idea of the engineering yeah. of the mind. Yeah. When did you pivot from sort of what we think is traditional engineering to okay. looking at the way people think and how they interact with each other? Oh, great question. Um, my, my first job in Chennai, that's where I kind of know that it, it, it was a seeding moment for me. I had to report uh, to my boss, who was the marketing manager, uh, the first MBA I ever saw in my life. And I clearly felt I knew better than he did. Uh, but I realized the ultimate decisions were made by him and not by me. And that frustrated me. I said, you know, what is it? What is it he got which I don't have, right? So that led me to the pursuit of power. So I really have to understand this. Got down to the kind of know what the basics about this. Got to understand it just for my own education. So that's how uh, I decided, man, I have to, I have to um, start from the fundamentals. No, in uh, no, natural sciences, so-called. No, you have to get a good grounding in mathematics and physics and chemistry and all this stuff. But here, oh, what's the what's the what's the corresponding, no? basket of disciplines you had to be proficient in. These are the five basic social sciences, no kind of psychology, economics, sociology, political science, and of course, anthropology, the summa theologica of all the social sciences. So how do I get to study this systematically you know, from, you know, from scholars, right? And at the same time, I'm an engineer, mind you. So I, I, had, I didn't want to get a PhD in psychology or, or economics. I wanted to have a PhD in applied social science. And the closest was a PhD in management. Sure. So we're going to throw around the word power a lot. But I would love to hear what your definition is of power. Uh, the way I define power um, uh, to my classes um, is, um, your, is the, the actionable capacity to get others to do what you want. So you want it, they do it. <laughs> Look at that. It's a, don't, you, don't you love that beautiful division of labor? All you need to do is just want it, and they do your bidding. To me, that's at the most, kind of, if you remove the fig leaf of punditry <laughs> that drapes it, that's what power is. You want it, someone does it for you. And what's the motivation? To doing it for you, yeah, that's a that's a different kind of you no know, basket of items here to you know prime mm -hmm. open. And I'm curious, we've we've kind of talked about what power is. What is not power? Like, what are some common misconceptions about what people think power is? What is not money is not power. Um, I think the biggest misconception is uh, now people think, well, yeah, I got the money, I got the power. No, uh, money is just one of those kind of you no. Know, potentialities. <laughs> but to me, power power is in the action dimension of it. Now, if you, if, you, know, you have to display power to be believed to be in possession of power. That's why I'm very scrupulous in defining it as actionable capacity. Not a potentiality, but an actionable capacity. So how do you know you got power? You don't know till you get the positive feedback mm -hmm. from the environment. So th th there's, there's no other way around it. So you, that's why I love the idea of power because it's a very action-driven uh, concept. And also, power, the pursuit of power is what leadership 
is ultimately all about, which is my, my power and leadership. I started with power, and then I kind of I evolved to learning about leadership because I found out leadership becomes the natural kind of peak destination for the power pursuit. I have so many questions about power that I feel like we're going to be here for oh, a long ahead. time. But, oh, but I probably should have taken your course. So I hope everyone signs oh, up Most for welcome it. to. So first question is when you walk, so when it comes to two people together yeah. and you walk into a room or you're starting a relationship, how do you already set the power dynamic? How do you walk into something and the power dynamic is already set? And my second question is then how do you shift it? Alrighty. Um, great question again, except um, uh, just like you said, you really have to sign up for my class and, <laughs> yeah. and maybe a couple of other classes too because I have my own, uh, what I call, the Kabi soft skills pyramid. Um, the trifecta. Uh, uh, the trifecta is the courses that, that, um, that were derived from my, my modeling of the so-called emotional intelligence, you know, mm-hmm. Allah Goldman. When I had to you know, uh, kind of uh, introduce the MBA program to a bunch of incoming MBA students a long mm-hmm. time ago. I was tasked with uh, with um, uh, with um, you know, <laughs> job of introducing you know, the content of the entire MBA program to incoming MBAs. There were hundreds of them at the, the, the auditorium down here in the Paulson, I believe. And I kept thinking about it. Man, how do we shrink down to like 10 to 15 minutes of what they should expect to find at Stone over the next two years. And I went to sleep thinking about it, and I woke up with this so-called twin pyramids within my mind's eye. Mm-hmm. When I called the hard skills pyramid, founded on mathematics, and then the first tier is statistics, which I call the sociology of numbers, because you are not a genius unless you have someone who is not a genius. Right, so it's all relative. Intelligence is relative, and therefore profitability is also relative. Mm-hmm. So then we move on from statistics to economics, which is the adversarial duel between supply and demand, right? And then we move on to uh, finance, which is the quantification of all things economics. So then you really get to compare yourself with someone else in the same game. And of course, the apogee of it all uh, in the hard skills pyramid for the professional business culture, I would deem, is strategy. Kind of having a sense of purpose. What is it you want to do? How do you want to create value? But then, to get it done, you have to migrate over to what I call the soft skills pyramid, which is founded on, I mean, the hardest stuff you can find within your brain is mathematics. What the softest stuff you can find? Language. Right? The ever malleable language. Mm. Have you ever wondered, we have 10,000 plus languages, but only one mathematics? All right? It's just amazing because it's like the, it's like the, the song of the divine, one universal language, you know, what I call symbolic logic. Be that as it may, founded on language, what do you have? Communication. So how do you impress the person you meet across the room? First, you got to have communication skills. And then you build up on top of it negotiation skills, all right? Which is, I would define communication as the art of self-expression intended toward creating an impression. If you don't create an impression, you're just talking to yourself, (laughs) right? But negotiation is 
the art of convincing the other person to get it your way. <laughs> so you need the communication skills plus negotiation skills to do that. And then you move on to the next year, which is politics. So to play politics right, you need communication skills. You need negotiation skills. And on top of it, you need political skills, which is what the course is all about. And then as a sequel to this course, Power and Politics, I designed, I was uh, invited by the, the executive MBA um, no, um, uh, office to design and deliver a capstone leadership course. And that leadership, capstone leadership, not to be confused with, a, with the introductory leadership course we also offer, the capstone course I, I designed as a sequel to the power and politics course. Because I do believe um, with power and politics, you, you, get to, you get to accumulate mostly powers of position, which is where you are. Power of expertise, like, no, that's what an MBA program is all about, right? Mm -hmm. Now, expertise, three letters, MBA, three letters. See that? Do the math. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> and and uh, what else? Um, uh, and then people got to know you know. So it's not just the power of expertise, but it's also the power of network. Then uh, kind of the, the power and politics course in a nutshell is think of power as one of those you know, Hindu deities I send up my prayers to, you know, um, triple-headed god of creation, all right? A single mind with three faces, right? The single mind which is focused on the pursuit of power, but three faces. One is hungering for position power. The other looking out for expert power. And the third one, it, looking for network power. How do I network? And I simply define this in very, very simple terms. Position, power, where you are in the food chain of the pecking order of power. Expert power, what you know relative to what others do not know, all right? And network power is who you know and how it connects with your own career objectives and all that, all right? But there's a fourth power which you do not really need uh, to build a, no, a politically successful career, but if you have it, God bless you twice. I call it referent power, um, drawn from research done way back, late 50s, early 60s, by French and Raven on the individual dimensions of uh, social power. They call it referent power, and they call it um, likewise as well, which is the power of being a mentor, the power of being looked up to, all right? So referent power, in simpler terms, is who looks up to you. Mm. And you may not be around, but they still look up to you. You may be dead and fodder to history books. They may still look up to you. So even an idea may have tremendous referent power. It's so, amazing that such a simple question has such a complex answer, and there's so many levels. Absolutely. Yeah. So now you see, so to, to, to you know, cycle, circle back to your question about you know, how do you gain power over the person uh, in the same room, you, know, you have to work, you, know, you have to do a, B, C, all of the above. So how do you navigate the politics of power in your family? Oh, <laughs> you know what? Um, within my own no, intimate family, it's just me and my boss, Satya, my, <laughs> my beloved bride of 20 plus years. And she's, uh, she's, um, um, uh, she's brilliant. 
I was in the top 50 out of 500,000 students in the SAT equivalent in the state I come from in India. So I thought, oh man, I got my bragging rights. And uh, I, I became, and I was awarded the presidential scholarship, national merit scholar, so-called, and all that. Um, till I found Satya, she was in the top 10. <laughs> all right, and marrying she, up, I like it. Oh yeah, I love it. I'm telling you, that's uh, Satya is the best deal that ever. No, gonna. Uh, it's like no, I supersized my life. All right, it's just not just French fries that get supersized. So I think in terms of politics of uh, love, I think. Um, the more the more you lose, the more you gain. Because you lose on behalf of someone whom you, um, you love. And Satya was a brilliant surgeon in India, but she sacrificed her own career because I was asthmatic. So she saw me, and I couldn't, I couldn't lie prone to go to sleep. So I would just kind of, kind of recline on my you know, easy chair, you know, a little lazy boy. And that went on for three years. And, but she, you know, know the brilliant you know, uh, doctor she was, you know, she, she turned me around. So oftentimes students ask me, where do you get all your energy from, Kabi? Right. The secret sauce, satya. And, and, and the joke is satya literally means in Sanskrit, truth, right? And I think we have a great division of labor in our family. She's in charge of speaking the truth. I take care of the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Right. You know, listening to you describe the kind of dual pyramids, mm -hmm. it reminded me of this IQEQ. Absolutely. Thing Absolutely. That, that Stern has, right? Absolutely. And, Stern. Oh, God bless Stern. I'm so. And I came here <laughs> as a student. I came here as a student, and I, but I haven't left because I'm still learning. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, at the very top of the, the soft skills period, uh, pyramid, you mentioned the word politics. Yeah. And I think recently politics has kind of got this negative connotation to it, right? And it's yes, yes. potentially the ex exasperation of the electorate with our own political system. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if someone describes an office as like very political, it's like a negative Beautiful. connotation in Beautiful. the recruiting process. Beautiful. And I'm curious, wh why is that? Um, <laughs> um, politics has always been a dirty word. Uh, for I, st I started offering my power and politics course. Uh, by the way, the most popular of the Kabi trifecta courses I, uh, I have uh, designed at Stone. I do an informal survey. Probably I did it with Nashem uh, uh, as well uh, in her class. Uh, word association, you know, twins, the first word. Kind of don't consult the intellectual brain, but just boom, kind of, kind of, what, is, kind of what, no, fleets across your mind's eye. Which word? An adjective. I was uh, looking for twins, identical twins. The second, uh, usually fraternal twins. Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic, all right? When I did it for uh, among New Yorkers, it was uh, Irish Catholic, all right? Mm -hmm. So it makes sense. So there's always this um, no, kind of um, segmented you know, uh, um, solutions you get. But one universal answer I get across cultures. I have done it with Japanese executives, Chinese bankers, uh, Saudi Arabian engineers, and of course, uh, no, uh, blue-blooded American managers. Uh, amazing. I say politics, the first word, and it hasn't changed. In 19 years, I've been collecting this data. Dirty. Number two, you know what number two was? Office. 
like office politics. Hmm. So I, it's a tough task for me because I spent the rest of the semester trying to wean them away from this notion that politics uh, is necessarily dirty. I said, you know, I said politics could be dirty, but it could also be clean. I said, look at politics as two dirty hands, one washing the other, and both coming out clean. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, though. So, because you cannot do without politics. I, I, because politics is the self-conscious, now I'm defining it to you. Politics, in my books, is the self-conscious engagement with conflict. It's not, it's not a visceral engagement, no kind of, kind of Harken back to all your lovers' quarrels with the loved ones and boyfriends and girlfriends and you know, siblings and, and buddies. We always have problems with people who we love, right? And we get really pumped up because we get to personalize that conflict, right? You feel betrayed. But in politics, I tell my class, depersonalize conflict. Then you ask me, is conflict necessary? Can we not design away conflict? Of course you can, but do you want to? That's a question. Now, uh, there's this great story, um, an institution that had designed away conflict. And this uh, institution was in charge of um, you know, spying on the enemies, all right? And it reported directly to the American president, right? And he was a young rookie of a president, and he was just unpacking. Uh, UPS hadn't delivered all his stuff yet. He was just entering the White House, right? I'm, of course, I'm exaggerating for effect, but he'd been there just for a, you know, for a little while. And this institutional head uh, tells him, President, we have a problem uh, just across the shore. His name is Fidel Castro, and there's a very easy way to unseat him. We have so many disgruntled Cuban immigrants whom we have duly trained over the last you know, several months, and they're going to start a revolution. Uh, and they'll just say yes, just sign on the dotted line, and boom, we're all set to go. And this uh, bunch of emigres no, will go back to Cuba and set up a beachhead for us. And of course, they'll be fired upon and they'll set up, you know, we are giving them you know, all the technology and they're going to cry, you know, help us out. We are trying to liberate Cuba. And as the only superpower you know, uh, in the neighborhood and wedded to democracy and all that you know, good stuff, we'll go and we'll have a legitimate reason. So the, the eyes of the world will be not looking down upon us, but looking up to us as a beacon of democracy and a savior of Cuban souls, right? And the young president said, okay, go ahead and do that, right? And uh, they did it and um, Castro's men were waiting for this uh, no, revolutionaries, and they were just plucked like so many hapless chickens. And, and it was great publicity fodder for, for Castro. And uh, the institution was the CIA. And the CIA has a culture of whatever the boss says is gospel. So you agree on the goal? Yeah, you got and seat Castro. You agree on the means? No, but you dare not say no. So if you agree on the goals and if you agree on the means, there's no conflict. See that? but there's catastrophe. But if you agree on the goals, but disagree on the means, then diversity of approaches is possible. Diversity of thinking is possible, and therefore innovation is possible. Creativity is possible. Incremental, albeit efficiency increase, is mm -hmm. possible. 
Right. You, you mentioned something that I want to unpack a little bit. You said yeah. that you can always design away conflict, but we don't. Yeah. What is it about the human mind that you found in your studies? Um, why does the human mind like conflict? It's not that we like conflict, but we are conflicted ourselves. Mm. You know what? Uh, we say one thing, I love you today, tomorrow I dislove you. It's the same mind. We, we are all large enough to contain contradictions. You know, the, the, great, the great poet, you know, the man who, who interpreted America to the rest of the world, um, you, know, you know what he says? Do I contradict myself? Yes, I do. I contradict myself because I contain multitudes. Leaves of Grass, Walt Whitman, hmm. all right? So I, I'm convinced we are all large enough to contain contradictions. It's all right. It's all right. It's part of the human condition. Let's not compete against gods. Let's stay human and accept our humanity and, and accept the limitations of being human and work with it. Uh, that's, that's me. So the idea is not to design away conflict, which is impossible, but design in conflict that's manageable. And to that point, um, one of the things that I think about a lot is civility. Because right, you talk yes. about how, yes. you know, in, you use the word engagement, and yeah. I think of, like, productive discussion, yeah. respect. Absolutely. And and a lot of that has gone away in yes. our current political yes. environment. Yes. And I'm curious, do you see that spilling over into the business world, or just how do you defend against the onslaught of, of incivility? <laughs> oh, great question. But you know what? It's not just politics, my friend. It's the politics of leadership. Because uh, leaders for good or ill reasons. Leaders get to imprint themselves on their followers. And I would not blame it on leaders alone because I do not subscribe to the great man theory of leadership either. I, I believe leadership is not a person but a phenomenon in which people who call themselves leaders and people who call themselves followers mutually discover each other, define each other, and sometimes destroy each other. So probably that's one of those you know, destructive spirits you know, <laughs> America uh, stages America is going through. Uh, but it's, it's kind of, it's, but leaders, the same way people talk about politics, politics dirty, people talk about leaders or being good or being evil. I don't think even the most evil person can never be an evil leader without the sponsorship of a munificent environment mm -hmm. without the availability of ready followers. So with, you remove the followers, you remove the leader. There's no uh, leadership. In science, we latch on to the logical opposite, all right? In science, we say, yeah, um, uh, 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 space, uh, kind of, uh, and the complete opposite of space. But in social science, I learned, you have to latch on to the psychological opposites, right? So uh, the opposite of love uh, may, be, uh, may be hate, but psychologically, the opposite of true op psychological opposite of love is indifference. Mm -hmm. Because uh, love, that person occupies your mind, but the indifference, that person has vacated the premises. They're functionally mm -hmm. dead for you. So that's what we should latch on to. So leadership, the opposite, in, in the true psychological sense, is followership. Not chaos, but followership. So because followers are psychologically dependent on leaders. So even if leaders do not look for followers, followers are looking out for them. 
So I would say it's not a psychological condition we see in America today. It's more than that. It's also kind of a sociological you know, and anthropological um, uh, condition we, we are witnessing. And this will, this will pass also. This will also pass. And amazing. Uh, I, I tell my class, guys, please uh, do not judge leaders as individuals. Do not judge no, uh, your manager. A manager is a euphemism for political actor, right? Uh, as, 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 as a bad boss. No, you're, you're here to please the boss in the short run. There, there's no other uh, way out of it. And so how can you please the boss and at the same time uh, work toward your own career objectives? That, politics, at the end of the road, politics is the practice of the feasible. While leadership is the pursuit of the ideal. And even for evil leaders, my friend, their ideal may be morally objectionable, but they feel morally satisfied with it. That's why for their followers, there may be one third of America following a leader the other two thirds hate now from, from, now from, the, from the pit of their stomach. But it is completely irrelevant to understanding and managing uh, no, uh, the, the, the phenomenon. Because for the one third of America that loves one's kind of leader, for them, he, she is moral enough. So I think we should really move away from painting a humanity in black and white and get comfortable with a million shades of gray. And of course, mm. the palest gray toward the end of day can pass for night. <laughs> Is that an original poem? No, it I just one. made it up. <laughs> I just made I just made it up. Once oh. a poet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's the other side of me. I, I love poetry. I've I've been, um, but I read it in my own mother tongue, Tamil, probably one of the oldest languages ever. Uh, definitely the oldest language in the Indian, surviving, oldest language in the Indian uh, um, uh, subcontinent, and I'm. Um, uh, what can I say? Was it uh, was the guy who got the Nobel Prize in Literature from Russia, uh, Brodsky, Joseph Brodsky? Um, he says, and I can't I can't put it better than what he does. He says, "Language is my muse." <laughs> no, so to me, kind of language is the 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 physical embodiment of the divine, because it connects you with all the ideas from the past. And all those who ideated in the past, our own ancestors, without them, no, we won't be here, right? So in that sense, and even the idea of God that they engineered into existence, but once God, and imagined the truth, once imagined, remains true. <laughs> Another word, and probably thought and feeling yeah. that's really powerful, is the word powerless. Yes. And I'm curious about your thoughts on how do you avoid feeling or being Beautiful. powerless? Great, great question. Thank you so much. Um, uh, for that, you have to um, revisit my idea of the psychological opposites of any specific concept. For leadership, I say, to understand leadership, latch on to followership. How do you become a leader? Create followers around you. So how, what's the psychological opposite of power? Dependence. So how do you increase your power, increase other people's dependence on you, all right? Your boss may be, may be, uh, 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 may be uh, kind of a, you, 
kind of a resident tyrant in the premises. But still, depersonalize conflict, go to your boss and see what is it he, she has to do to please his, her boss upstairs, all right? And start doing that work. Volunteer your slave labor so that he, she would look good in the eyes of his, her boss upstairs. And before long, the tyrant would learn to tango with you. <laughs> I love you the way you speak. I know. <laughs> it's I like watch, a story, you know. Listen, it's very dramatic. I like it. You could literally listen to you. I'm curious, though, when you say that the opposite of, uh, the psychological opposite of power is dependence. Yeah. But how do you differentiate between, like, I have to I have to use you at work, I have to use you in the, in the meeting, I have to have you in my life versus I want to have you there? How do you differentiate between, oh, like, the dependence oh, versus, like, the choosing? Oh, yeah, no, but, but you know what? <laughs> Fantastic. You guys are so pumping. Oh, man, I'm learning from every question <laughs> of yours. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Um, uh, how, do I, how do I respond to that? I would say um, you have to differentiate between the politics at work from the politics of love. The politics of work is a contract mm -hmm. you've signed on to, and you can always renege on that contract. But the politics of love is a one-way street. And kind of you're, you're, you're kind of, you're doomed <laughs> to love the other. <laughs> All right? So you soar on like a bird or you fall like a stone with the other. Cannot be helped. You cannot dislove the other. That's the problem. Because we are, we are made up of all those we connected with and ran away from after connecting with cannot be. Yeah, time, no, the bard says, what, Shakespeare, was it? Time heals all wounds. I'd say, yeah, sure, Shakespeare is right. Time, the greatest healer of wounds, is still a very poor remover of scars. So you, you have to learn to live with it. So I think that the politics of love is very, very different. Because in the politics of love, you want to give, not take. In the politics of work, you want to take and give as little as you can. That's, that's what we teach MBAs, right? Maximize value. <laughs> Maximize your utility function. Right? But in love, you have to give because you have to learn to forgive as well. But at work, no, you forget. You don't forgive. No, you just forget. Kind of, you understand. You understand. Now, all the difficulties you're going through, but you find your way around it because you understand any social system, there has to be some conflict. And the, the conflict may be the boss doesn't like you or the boss doesn't like your way you, uh, you approach a project. So if you personalize any of it, then it's not, it's not going to be good for your own, your own job today or your own career tomorrow. So I think the biggest lesson in learning to be politically savvy is depersonalizing conflict. But that's hard. Mm -hmm. That's hard. Mm -hmm. I'm, have, still, I'm still struggling. Yeah, we have our egos and our passions and, well, yeah, yeah. and the movements of the heart. Absolutely. Um, so we've talked a lot about what goes on inside your classroom. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we want to bring up is what goes on outside of it. And you were recently asked to moderate a Stern Women in Business yes. panel, yeah. particularly targeted at male allies uh, and how to be a good uh, how to be good ally. Can you talk about oh, how you approach yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, great question again. This is something that's been very close to my heart 
uh, because the, the very first woman um, no, uh, I, I met was my mom. And she has been a seminal influence in my life. You know, she taught me how to love, right? And I grew up with, you know, with a bunch of sisters and aunts and all that. So I've been, a, I say kind of, I've been nurtured and nourished uh, by women all along in my life. I think I've become an, almost an honorary woman myself, you know? Because you, I, could, I could see how um, women who are half the human species, they don't even wield 10% of the power wielded by human species. So how come people who are numerically equal to men, how could they be politically so, um, you know, um, so handicapped, right? And this has perplexed me because, mind you, the, the, I've been, I've been pursuing power because I wanted, one was the intellectual curiosity. And I just wanted to learn how these things work, all right? And as I started kind of researching and dwelling upon it and trying to connect back with what I see uh, in life, uh, not, not just the life of the mind, but the, the, the life of you know, every day and every night you see around yourself. And you see inequality, inequity all around all around. And uh, one of my earliest uh, experiences was how a person who was, um, I think it was one of my uncles, he was talking down and almost kind of using you know, verbally abusive uh, to a, a, a paid coolie worker who was trying to kind of uh, do some you know, manual labor around the garden. And uh, my, um, this gentleman was very, uh, I would say, kind of uncompassionate uh, toward the uh, the daily laborer, and that laborer was a uh, pretty, you know, muscle, well-muscled, you know, uh, a man with beautiful curly you know, mustache, kind of, you no know, kind of, with kind of visible proof of his manhood, you know, inhabiting him. But this man was almost kowtowing to this kind of lean, mean, you no know, uh, landlord, <laughs> right, mm -hmm. person. And that kept me kind of you know, wondering how come this guy takes so much abuse and not hit him back? Because I was so sociologically you know, you know, ignorant. Mm -hmm. Then later on, and I realized, yeah, because you know, it's the, you know, if he complains, no, no, uh, no uh, it goes to the cops and says, this guy is not going to verbally abusing me, the cops will take no action because they belong the same caste. Get it? So that was kind of caste, the caste stratification in India. It really opened your eyes out. And it's, so that kind of kept me thinking, oh, man, why is it? Because this man has no power. So uh, how do you get power? Well, I have to understand what power is, where power comes from. It's like a big Mississippi River where, you know, where, where the, we can find the origin of the river. Then that's that what you know, kind of, you know, it took me to. It took me down to the soft skills pyramid and how mm. simple at once and complex it is. Uh, it's simple because you feel powerless. It's a very simple feeling. No, you feel kind of absolutely impotent. Uh, but to acquire it, uh, you got to go to a business school. It's so unfair. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> you got to go to Stern. <laughs> uh, speaking of Stern, you say that you're a lifelong learner. I'm curious if you have like three favorite books of all time that you read and reread in different chapters of your own life. Well, uh, I was. Um, uh, no, uh, this guy oh, who got the Nobel Prize in Literature again, um, uh, William Faulkner, in his acceptance speech, 
He says, no, we should, should look at not just the transient truths, but the eternal verities of life. Right? He chooses a very archaic word, uh, self-consciously, I presume. No, verities, uh, meaning truth today, yesterday, and forever. Uh, but then, you know, what I come from, the, the so-called the, the, the priestly caste of India originally. So uh, probably kind of some of that rubs off onto you. So I've been always kind of um, drawn to uh, kind of what's the meaning of it all? And where does man come from? Where does woman come from? Where does life come from? And where does God come from, right? And I found that God comes from many of these scriptures. So I read uh, the Hindu sacred book, the so-called Bhagavad Gita, the Buddhist um, you know, Jataka tales of the Buddha, and um, the Old Testament of the Jews and, and the New Testament, you know, Christianity and the Quran and Das Kapital, where Marx makes an excellent point, no? Uh, accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. That's the law and the prophets, right? And uh, for, a, for, a, for an equalizer, Adam Smith you know, works, <laughs> and as well as the, the Holy Quran. Right, uh, which I found the most democratically written theological piece of its time. Um, but uh, having done all that, uh, I, I feel you any book that connects the here with the hereafter, and it's kind of it's kind of that really. You know, no, I have I have a Jewish friend of mine who is trying to teach me the Talmud. So uh, this mm -hmm. kind of I I, I, I kind of it, it intrigues me because I, I guess ultimately I think it's like um, there's um, in my language there's an excellent uh, a poem. Um, my 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 great mentor, a great modern poet, he says, you know what, we will be slave to no man ever. We'll be. We'll, we will take no master in our life ever except God as our only master. Get it? So in that sense, kind of, I thought kind of, it's, it's almost like a shorthand for all the stuff we earn to be uh, and, and to become, right, and to know. So in that sense, God is a very nice shorthand, I thought. So any, any, uh, any of those old ancestral, you know, kind of the, the, the books, you know, the the. The usual suspects, you know, scriptures, I, I love scriptures you know, on any religion in any language. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, um, more modern times, a team of rivals, and I, um, because in I, and I study leadership, a team of rivals on Abe Lincoln, I think it's an excellent example of the perfect political actor who also evolves into being a perfect leader for his times. And I mm. thought it was uh, great. And it's so, that also goes to prove politics is neither dirty nor clean. He had to do uh, some of the stuff. What, what Lincoln did was not so clean, but the, the outcome turned out to be clean, mm -hmm. right? And I love Joseph Campbell, the man who founded the discipline of mythology. He was the first mythologist, right? And um, the power of myths, this is one of his books, Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he connects the, the, the cultural myths of all religions and ethnicities uh, across time and then and find a commonality of the image of the hero, you know, the, the, the deified leader, right? And closer home, one of our uh, uh, faculty friends, um, excellent mind, uh, Kwame Apaya, Professor Apaya, uh, he has a book out, Lies that bind, not to be confused, the ties that bind, 
<laughs> lies that bind. And he does an, uh, I don't know, great job of how things that are objectively untrue, right, lies, they end up truly binding us together as a community. It's like creed or class or color or, or country, right, or, um, or culture. But ultimately, all these you know, seas, right, uh, which are not objectively true, but ultimately they, they lead to something, I would say, morally positive, which is a sense of community, mm. a sense of belongingness. Yeah, it's right? a great way to bring it, bring it full circle. Beautiful. You mentioned uh, a book that connects the here and the hereafter. Yeah. Um, and I want to ask you about a book that I actually just finished reading called okay. The Last Lecture. Okay. Um, by, by Randy Posh. And he's uh, a professor at Carnegie Mellon at the time. Yes. And he's dying of pancreatic yes. cancer. Yes, he yes, gets yeah. up uh, and, and delivers this last lecture on achieving his yeah. childhood dreams. Um, I think a lot of universities around yeah. the country have this last lecture idea yeah. where yeah, yeah. they ask professors to get up and, and yeah. give the lecture yeah. as if it were going to be their last. Uh, we actually just got an email about who we wanted to do. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> who we wanted to do. So I'm curious. <laughs> there, there are two questions uh, that I have for you. Uh, excuse me. By the way, yeah. I did give a last lecture. I mean, I'm reasonably healthy, but I did, uh, <laughs> I, I did give a last lecture last year uh, to, to the graduating uh, MBAs. Mm -hmm. But me, uh, me with a cup, uh, half a dozen other uh, uh, professors as mm -hmm. well. Well, I, my, my okay. question was, what what wisdom do you have to impart on on graduating uh, on graduating Beautiful. students? Beautiful. Uh, and then also, what do you want your own legacy to be? And how do you encourage people to think about to think about their legacy? Ah, beautiful question, man. Oh, man. You guys are so cooking, and, and I feel so cold before you. Uh, uh, you know what? I have to, uh, I have to refer back to uh, uh, one of my uh, fundamentally favorite philosophers. He was a fellow Tamil um, a poet, philosopher, who lived probably like 2,000 years ago. And he wrote a book of ethics, 1,330 couplets. Just imagine, two-line poems, 2,660 lines. That's the entire output of his life on earth. He wrote nothing else. He waited till he was to be <laughs> passing you know, stage, and he wrote it all up. And we still preserve it, and I think that's the, my personal favorite. And I've been trying to translate it into modern English for the last 30, 40 years, and I'm not done. You know, translations, they never get completed. They get abandoned, <laughs> all right? And they'll get abandoned with my passing. In any case, so I'm going to quote him in terms of, no, no kind of what is it? No, you want to be I Ultimately, I believe uh, man is a spiritual animal. Uh, even kind of, you know, we say, well, yeah, you got to have money. But you know what? You're surrounded by people, a community that values money. Otherwise, no, there'll be nothing to it. Because what's, what's, the, what's the value of life? What's the value of a dollar bill? What's the value of, do I feel rich today? Yeah, $100. What, what do we get for $100? What's the value of this $100 bill? Only when you spend it, you find it. By the way, Kavi just pulled out a $100 bill. He's <laughs> <laughs> uh, painting the picture for you at home. He's also, <laughs> he's also buying lunch. <laughs> <laughs> now, so... But how do you find the value of a $100 bill? Only when you spend the $100. So the, the value, the valuation of life is in its consumption, 
in its dispensation. That's why I keep begging my class and my students, uh, my friends, please have some kind of an objective. Have some kind of true north. You may not get there, but at least, and you may often go down south, but you'll know you're going down south. And success, success, I define success is what you reach after failing uh, many, many times. So uh, success is not the opposite of failure. It's the end of failure. So oftentimes people are afraid to fail, to have a vision. But leadership, I, I, I can tell you my leadership course in one cute little, what I call the copy leadership paradigm. To lead is to envision, to have a vision for your life, for your community, what have you, for your team, for your, for your company. And then to energize so that they see your vision and they want to they do it for you, all right? And then execute it. So you got to envision, you got to energize, you got to execute. And you got to do all three. You got to do all three. But managers are mostly specialists on execution front, a little bit on the energizing front. But we don't teach them envisioning much. You got to envision. To, en to envision is to, to experiment. To experiment is to falter and fail. So I think we are, we are afraid to teach students how to fail. Mm. But I tell you, you know, we have to teach them how to fail faster to succeed sooner. That's what we have to do. So as an academic, that, that's, not, that's one line of my thinking. Another thought is, uh, uh, what should uh, students uh, no, uh, go after? Yeah, they should go after money because if you cannot, if you, if you don't have wealth, you cannot make it here. Just as if you don't have grace, you cannot make it in the hereafter. That's one of the poems written by Valluver, the great philosopher who lived 2,000 years ago. Right? He says in, in, the, in the original tongue, Porul illarke ibulahi illai. Arul illarke avulahi illahi Porul is wealth, arul is divine grace. So you have to look at both. All right? Now, having said that, each of us is a product molded by our own environmental you know, context. And some environments sponsor our vision, some environments suffocate our vision. So, now, if you feel too suffocated, migrate to a different environment. But be that as it may, you have to have this superstitious belief that you are unique. That's the only superstitious assumption I request everyone listening in today, please believe you are unique and then spend the rest of your life journeying toward finding and polishing, perfecting, and performing based on this uniqueness. So uh, Joseph Campbell, he said it best, go find your bliss, go mm -hmm. find your bliss. And it may sound like a cliche, but cliches are still, you no. Know, lurking around because they, they happen to be true. Yeah, yeah, 200 billion snowflakes, they all look similar, but no two are identical. Yes, of course. Even the identical twins, genetically identical twins, they're not identical in, in performance, right? So you have to believe that Mother Nature does not make carbon copies, right? Mother Nature, that, that thing, if you don't have the simple belief, then there's no ground for optimism. Mm. Uh, and I think uh, uh, you've got to have faith. You've got to have faith. 
and if we have if we have faith in the hereafter, then it's easier come by. But uh, uh, but even otherwise, you gotta have faith that you are unique. You uh, and it, uh, what can I say? Uh, it's, it's like um, if you don't have faith, you cannot hope, right? And it's gonna, and to me, faith is optimism in the absence of data, right? <laughs> and you you'll never have enough data. I like that. <laughs> but you have to have it. You have to have it. And what's the worst that could happen? You know, prove yourself wrong. Mm-hmm. Big deal. All right? But that's what's going to happen if you start without the premise of uniqueness. Then you're going to be a commodity. You are going to be a follower. So I say, if you have this superstitious faith in yourself that you're unique, you can make a difference, then you tend to become a leader and not stay back a follower. And survey says three-fourths of humanity is pre-wired to follow. That's why there are more followers than leaders, right? So uh, what can I say? Now, if you dare to lead, look at the Stern MBAs. They're probably like top one or two percent of the world population already. I mean, uh, what percent of humanity goes to school? What percent of humanity gets to survive? Uh, beyond the f- fifth year, there are African tribes where the children are not named, babies are not named till they get to the fifth year because many babies die. So why personalize the affection by naming them? See that? So if you, if you believe, if you believe you can make a difference, then you just, you know, just journey down that path. That's what I'm saying. And on that note, Professor Kabi, thank you so much for joining us for such an insightful and meaningful conversation. Um, we didn't take your class, but we learned a lot, yeah. for sure, in our conversation. Yeah. I love your passion, and I love the one-liners. So thank we've you. Been, thank we've you. been copying them Writing them down. Them down. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But you know what? May I, with your permission, may I conclude with a two-liner, which is one, my, one of my favorite couplets, which I shared in the last lecture last year with my uh, MBA uh, graduates. Uh, Valluvar, a uh, uh, great poet, Valluvar, he has been translated into 100-plus languages. Um, and uh, the book itself is called The Sacred Couplets, Tiru Kurar, okay, Sacred Couplet. And uh, this couplet goes on something about what do you, when you look back, what is it you should be looking back upon, all right? There's the fit. Let me say it in Tamar, and, let me, and then, then I'll, I'm going to auto-translate it, okay? Takkar, Takaviller, Yenbade, Avar, Avar, Yachatal Kanapadam. The fit and the unfit, we know each kind from the legacy they leave behind. So may we leave behind great legacies, all of us. Thank you. <laughs>